0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my lovely listeners, beautiful brainiacs, and the incurably curious. This week's episode is slightly different fare from usual. Things are a little tense here in the States just before the presidential inauguration. Stuff's on fire, man. No, literally, there's a fire right now next to where they're doing the inaugural practice. So I thought I might do what I did for Election Day, a distraction data dump made up of the bonus mini-episodes from over at patreon.com yourbrainonfacts. These clips have some or all of their original intro on them, which can be helpful if I reference a specific period of time. Supporters of the show have access to dozens of these mini episodes, as well as other perks. And next week's episode topic was actually picked by our patrons. And if you want to support the show, but not financially, you can always just tell a friend. Still, the best thing you can do for a podcaster. And now, your feature presentation. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. I'm here today to tell you about Germany's most elusive serial killer. From an article on Time.com, the murderer dubbed the Phantom of Heilbronn had been baffling German investigators for two years. The criminal was a rarity, a female serial killer, and a very busy one. The police had linked DNA evidence from 40 crimes, including the infamous homicide of a policewoman in the southern German town of Heilbronn to this same woman. Police had found the phantom's DNA on items ranging from a cookie at a crime scene, to a heroin syringe, to a stolen car. They'd put out a $400,000 reward on her head. Profilers from around Europe were called in to help. The police even consulted diviners and fortune tellers in hopes of discovering the phantom's identity. Newspapers declared the case the most mysterious serial crime of the past century. The Phantom became a national celebrity in 2007 after the murder of 22-year-old policewoman Michelle Kasswetter. All of Germany watched the case unfold, and Heilbronn police alone racked up 16,000 hours of overtime pursuing the culprit. Police announced they'd found DNA traces matching that of the Phantom on several cold cases, including a murder dating back to 1993. But as they studied the evidence, contradictions emerged that should have raised some red flags. The Phantom was not only a brutal killer, suspected in six homicides, but also a common thief. She had been involved in a car dealership robbery and a school break-in. But in both cases, other people convicted of those crimes denied the involvement of a woman. The Phantom's list of accomplices showed no pattern. Ranging from Slovak to Serb, Albanian to Romanian, her territory stretched throughout Germany and into Austria and France. No one had ever seen her, no security camera had ever captured her image, but when witnesses described her, they said, she looked like a man. It wasn't until 2009 that investigators figured out something had gone very wrong. Trying to establish the identity of a burned corpse found in 2002, they were re-examining the fingerprints of a male asylum seeker taken from his asylum application many years earlier. The fingerprints contained the female phantom's DNA. Impossible, they thought, as they repeated the test with a different cotton swab and this time found no trace of the phantom's DNA. This raised suspicion that the DNA found at all of the phantom's crime scenes might have been traced to the swabs themselves. Cotton swabs are sterilized before being used to collect DNA samples. And while sterilizing removes bacteria, viruses, and fungi, it doesn't necessarily destroy DNA. Austrian authorities began decommissioning all cotton swabs manufactured by the company Greiner Bio 1 International AG after they made a similar discovery with a different mysterious DNA donor. Several German states admitted to using that same brand of cotton swab. An investigator from the state of Baden-Württemberg told a newspaper, the things were double-packaged. We thought they were the Mercedes of cotton swabs. But the Austrian manufacturer hurried to declare that Greiner Bio-1 cotton swabs are not certified for DNA analysis. And it turned out that Berlin police had also been using cotton swabs from Greiner Bio 1. Stefan Koenig of the Berlin Association of Lawyers said that the case of the phantom phantom illustrates the risk of basing an investigation too heavily on forensic evidence. DNA analysis is a perfect tool for identifying traces. What we need to do is avoid the assumption that the producer of the traces is automatically the culprit, he said. Judges tend to be so blinded by the shiny, seemingly perfect evidence of DNA traces that they sometimes ignore the whole picture. So whose DNA was it on the cotton swabs? A middle-aged Eastern European woman working in the Griner Bio 1 factory. The actual details on why this one worker's DNA was on so many cotton swabs was never released. But needless to say, Most or all of the agencies involved felt like they had a bit of egg on their face, chasing a serial killer who didn't exist. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and hello, wherever and whenever you are, to copy my friend Sean from Stories of Your and Yours. Welcome, patrons, old and new, to the first bonus episode for the month of September. I have not been hit as hard emotionally by having to be home because I used to be a farmer and I've worked for myself and I'm kind of accustomed to being at home all the time. I know for a lot of other people, though, it has been rough, especially some friends of mine who are huge Disney fanatics and usually go to a Disney park multiple times a year. And it's just not a good idea. I don't care if they reopened. Just don't. Don't go. But even a potential COVID outbreak or the measles outbreak they had a few years ago would pale in comparison to the disaster that was Opening Day at Disney, from our good friends over at Mental Floss. Disneyland is known as the happiest place on Earth, but when the park opened on July 17, 1955, it didn't live up to its now ubiquitous nickname. In fact, Disney employees who survived the day referred to it as Black Sunday. The opening day was by invite only, not for public consumption. Tickets were mailed out to select individuals, including friends and family of the employees, members of the press, and celebrities of the day. However, there was a flood of counterfeit tickets being presented as well. They were only expecting 15,000 guests, but nearly twice as many, more than 28,000 showed up. The tickets had been divided, the legitimate ones anyway, into two different times, one for morning and one for afternoon, to kind of spread out the load. The morning tickets had an end time of 2.30 p.m. when I guess they figured people would see that and just say, oh, my time's up and I'll leave. Nobody did that. You buy a ticket for a theme park, you're there all day so the attendants ballooned once the afternoon people started showing up. And then there were the people who started just sneaking in. One enterprising chap set a ladder up against the outside fence and charged people five bucks to climb it. Now that's American entrepreneurship. A lot of things were not ready on opening day, including but not limited to the Santa Ana Freeway outside where cars were backed up for over seven miles. The opening of the park essentially shut the freeway down. There were so many people waiting so long, according to some media reports, there was rampant, let's call it, bathroom breaks on the side of the road and even in the Disney parking lot. Now, you might think of Disney as being meticulously manicured and maintained. Now, maybe... Opening day, not so much. While Disney had tried to push for everything to be ready, hustling his people to work faster, but there's only so much you can do. So, there were bare patches of ground, there were weeds where there should have been manicured lawns and flowers. Workmen were still painting buildings and planting trees when the people came in. The areas of native flora, and weeds that they couldn't get rid of in time, they instead put little signs with the Latin name of the plant in the weeds, so it kind of looks like it was meant to be there. Speaking of bathrooms, Disney also was faced with a plumber's strike during construction, and Walt Disney basically had to decide between working water fountains or working toilets. Florida heat notwithstanding and the need for water he chose to have the toilets working, and I'd say that was probably a good call. And if anyone has ever played uh, Theme Park Tycoon or any of those games, now you know that people are going to have to pay for drinks rather than getting water from the water fountain. Or they would if the park had been fully stocked. The massive overflow of people meant that the food and drink that they had in inventory was gone in just a couple of hours. That was not good on a 100-degree day. Combine that with the fact that the asphalt had been finished so recently that it began sticking to the patron's shoes. Some people even claimed to have gotten their shoes completely stuck to the pavement on Main Street. And the rides, which are, you know, a big thing at an amusement park, they were just not ready. A number of rides, like Peter Pan's Flight, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Submarine Voyage, and the famous Flying Dumbo, broke down or never opened at all on opening day because they just hadn't finished building them. And that kind of continued on for the first few weeks of the park. A stagecoach ride in Frontierland permanently closed when it was discovered they had a tendency to flip over like bronco twos if they got too top heavy 36 cars in autopia crashed due to aggressive driving on the part of the patrons which is you know kind of just what people are going to do ironically the ride was designed to help children learn to be respectful drivers on the road don't forget you built this park in florida and, uh, there were, you know, a number of live animals in a circus attraction, which was not great, when a tiger and a panther escaped, which resulted in, quote, a furious death struggle between the two animals on Main Street, USA. Now that's an attraction you can't pay for. There was also the Mark Twain Riverboat in Frontierland, which, like the park, was over capacity on opening day with over 500 people cramming onto the boat. This caused it to go off its tracks and sink in the mud. It took about half an hour to get it back onto the rail, and as soon as it pulled up to the landing, everyone rushed to get off. That's everyone on a boat rushing over to one side, so it tipped over. Thankfully, the water was shallow and there were no injuries. There was, however, a gas leak over at Sleeping Beauty's castle, which could have been a serious problem and prompted the closing of Adventureland, Fantasyland, and Frontierland for a few hours. Because, oopsie, Sleeping Beauty's castle was on fire. Well, it was trying to catch fire. There was a flame definitely involved in the gas leak. Reports vary as to how severe it actually was. Now, Disney himself was so busy handling the press... That he didn't even learn about the fire until the following day. That's how chaotic things were. Because Disney was a shrewd and clever businessman, so he thought, I am opening this park, let's make this into a big live television event. He partnered with uh, ABC, which had also helped to finance Disneyland, providing nearly a third of the funds necessary. In return, Walt Disney would host a weekly TV show about what people could expect to see in Disneyland a year before it would open. So on opening day, Walt Disney hosted a 90-minute live TV special with Art Linkletter Bob Cummings and future president Ronald Reagan. 90 million people tuned in to see The Happiest Place on Earth. And that kind of ratings was no mean feat for 1955. The cameras showed all of the fun and excitement of Disneyland, completely obscuring all of the disasters and unhappiness that was actually happening. But the broadcast didn't get away scot-free. It was riddled with technical difficulties. Guests kept tripping over camera cables that were strung all over the park. There were on-air flubs, people who forgot their mics were on, mics not working, and unexpected moments caught on camera such as co-host Bob Cummings caught making out with one of the dancers just before going to air. This is not so much a show as it is a special event, Art Linkletter said during the broadcast. The rehearsal went about the way you'd expect a rehearsal to go if you were covering three volcanoes all erupting at the same time, and you didn't expect any of them. So from time to time, if I say, we take you now by camera to the snapping crocodiles in Adventureland, and instead somebody pushes the wrong button and we catch Irene Dunn adjusting her bustle on the Mark Twain, don't be too surprised. So opening day at Disney was a bit more like the Simpsons episode where they went to Itchy and Scratchy World. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the Lost Colony of Roanoke? you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlewood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Hello my beautiful Brainiacs, for today's bonus episode we're going back to ancient Japan by way of modern Japan and the United States in the late 1990s. We are talking about Pokémon, and in fact specifically, the folkloric origins of many of the Pokémon you know and love. We're sticking with the original 150, because I am old school like that, I cannot be bothered to learn any new ones. We'll talk about the Pokémon that people think about when they think of Pokémon, and that is Pikachu. But we're going to start with his evolved form, Raichu. Raichu is based on a yokai, a demon or otherworldly spirit, called Raiju. Raiju is either made of lightning or has lightning crackling around its body. It's usually a wolf-like or dog-like creature. Pikachu himself is probably based on a little cute mouse thing called a Pika. But regardless, Raiju like to be fully surrounded in soft things when they sleep. So much so that their favorite sleeping spot is in someone's belly button. Now, this isn't usually a problem for the person who owns that particular belly button, unless the thunder god, Raijin, wants to wake up his pet Raiju, in which case he will throw lightning arrows at it. That is a rough way to wake up, so a lot of people in Japan would believe that you should sleep on your stomach during storms so that the Raiju can't get into your belly button. There are two possible historical influences for Meowth, the cat Pokémon in Team Rocket standing on two legs with a coin on his head. He could be related to Maneki Neko, or the beckoning cat, the little cat statue that you see in a lot of Asian-owned stores and businesses, where he's got one paw in the air and he's waving at you like, come here, give us money. Maneki Neko are supposed to bring good luck and fortune. That's why people keep them. But Meowth could also be based on Bakeneko, Neko, not Bak-a Neko, that would translate to stupid cat. e Neko is a cat yokai walks on its hind legs and uses its powers to cause trouble, just like any regular cat, uh, up to and including killing its owners, which as a lifelong owner of cats, I wouldn't put past them. It can summon fire and even make zombies control people's corpses. The longer a Becca Neko's tail is, the more powerful it is, so you can also see influences in Pokémon. Like a Purloin, Esper, and Meowstick, who have long tails. Arguably, even Mew and Mewtwo, they're not cats specifically, but they're pretty cat like and they stand on two legs and have really long tails, like a Neko. Now, Growlithe, Arcanine, and Enti are based on Koma Inu. Koma Inu are lion dogs. If you've ever seen A big statue of an animal outside of a shrine or another important business guarding the entrance, usually one on either side, that is a Koma Inu. Gyarados, Dragonair, and Dratini are based on dragons. Japanese dragons are a little less fire-oriented than European or Chinese dragons. They're mostly water-based animals, sort of a leviathan or sea serpent type of thing. They can turn into humans and walk and talk, just like us, but they can't keep their disguises up forever. The mythical origin of Japan's first emperor is that he was born from a dragon mother who had been in disguise as a human, but had dropped her disguise during childbirth. Electabuzz is an electric Pokemon with tiger stripes and horns on its head. He's based on more of a class of yokai than on one specifically, that being the oni, which translates to ogre, essentially. If you've ever seen a monster mask from the far east where it has tusks and horns, that's an oni. They're usually drawn wearing loincloths made from animal hides, often tiger, and almost always have horns. So you could make the argument that a Pokemon with horns that isn't clearly based on something else is based on an Oni. Tangential bonus fact. There is the long-held anti-Semitic belief that Jewish people have horns. I wish I'd gotten around to watching Jojo Rabbit a lot sooner, but that came up several, several times. That actually comes from a mistranslation, which was supposed to describe Moses as having a halo, or a glow, around his head and someone translated it as him having horns, and it just got repeated, and then here we are. Moltres, the phoenix-looking Pokémon, is probably based on Suzaku, a vermilion bird that was borrowed from Chinese mythology, as Japan was so inclined to borrow from China. It looks like a pheasant covered in flames and represents the fire element in Taoism. A pretty easy one to make the connection on is Ho'o. It's based on the Ho'o, one of the most sacred creatures in Japanese folklore. It also comes from China and is supposed to be covered in feathers of black, white, red, yellow, and green, the five colors representing the Chinese elements. They basically represent anything good, purity, fortune, peace, happiness. When humanity is suffering, the Ho'o, flies away to heaven. It returns during good times, so if you see one, it's a sign of prosperity. Though that description just kind of sounds like it bailing on us when maybe we needed it most. A number of Pokémon are based on a class of Yokai called sukamogami, which are ordinary household objects that have become self-aware. There was a belief that if an object survives to be 100 years old, it becomes a Sukumogami. Kind of like the Brave Little Toaster, but with the potential to be very, very dark. Because the Tsukomogami type Pokemon seem to be based on one in particular, the Chochin Obaki, the paper lantern ghost. When a paper lantern is old enough, it wakes up, it opens its mouth that it has now, and a tongue rolls out. It opens eyes that appear. The Chochin is at the center of what is arguably Japan's most famous ghost story. Drowsy, Hypno, and newer Pokémon's Muna and Musharna are based on the Baku, the Nightmare Eater. It's sort of the platypus of the Japanese mythological pantheon. It was supposedly made of all the leftover bits from when the other creatures were made. It has an elephant's trunk, rhinoceros' eyes, an ox's tail, and the paws of a tiger. Kind of like a slightly late dream catcher. If a child is having a nightmare and they wake up, they can call out three times, Bakusan, come eat my dream. And the Baku will arrive and devour the child's nightmare so they can go back to sleep. Assuming they can get over the yokai that just appeared in their bedroom. But like calling Beetlejuice, you've got to be careful calling for Bakusan three times because if he doesn't get full from your nightmare, it may eat your hopes and dreams as well, leaving you with an empty and unfulfilling life. Even still, children keep little charms of Baku next to their beds to protect them. And that is just a sampling of the Pokemon based on yokai or other traditional Japanese creatures. Hello, my beautiful Bereniacs. I've got a quick bonus episode for you today, chock full of schadenfreude. And if you're talking schadenfreude, you'd best go to the source, to Germany, specifically the Duchy of Thuringia, which I'm probably mispronouncing because it sounds like a Star Trek The Next Generation word, in the year 1184, for the Erfurt Latrine disaster. With a name like that, it has to be good. A quick summary from our friends at Wikipedia. A number of nobles from across the Holy Roman Empire were meeting in a room at the Church of St. Peter when their combined weight caused the floor to collapse into the latrine beneath the cellar and led to dozens of nobles drowning in liquid excrement. There is no way you can come across a history story like this and just keep going. But I could not find a ton about it. Thankfully, there was one nice write up by an author, Xavier. something German starting with an F, sorry guys. Sometimes when we visit a castle, a small bay window catches our eye on the outside. At an airy height, it sticks to the rock like a swallow's nest. That was the castle toilet. Whatever man wanted to get rid of, he simply let it fall down into the landscaping along the outer wall through a hole in the floor. It was practical. It didn't pollute the inside of the castle that way. The method, because it was so simple, was also used in the cities. There was often a narrow space between the individual row of houses, enough space for the walled-in swallows nests. That which man did not need would fall down into the space between the buildings to be washed away by the rain or removed by hand. In the winter it froze over, which at least make things a little less unpleasant. The invention of underground drainage pits did bring an improvement. It was essentially exactly what it sounds, a large pit that had boards across the top and would fill up naturally over time. That way at least the filth and the smell remained in the vicinity of the person who caused it. But these pits could not be washed out by a heavy rain and had to be laboriously emptied by hand. A job nobody wanted. So if the pit was allowed to get completely full, they may just put boards across the whole top of it and dig another one. On July 26, 1184, the Archbishop's Castle of Erfurt, though some say it was the Cathedral at Merenstift, gathered a handsome number of counts, lords, princes, bishops, archbishops, well-to-do citizens of the city, and King Heinrich. They had come together to settle a dispute that had arisen between the Archbishop of Mainz and the Landgrave Ludwig of Thuringia. The noble gentlemen all met on the second floor of the building, and it was then that the beams of wood of the floor, which were old and rotted, gave way under the weight of so many men, and they fell to and through the floor beneath. Those beams were even more rotted and add to that the impact force of the weight of the men, they stood no chance. And everyone, writes Pastor Lietzman, who researched what happened many years ago, who was not sitting in the lattice windows, plunged into the depths, many of them damaged, some even lost their lives. Several even fell into a secret room, some of which could hardly be pulled out with great difficulty, and others choked in that most hideous filth. The noble Heinrich von Schwarzburg, for whom the archbishop's quarrel had started in the first place, was killed. Though the pastor notes, Landgrade Ludwig also fell down, but was saved happily. The king and archbishop were sitting in the window sills, and they had to be carried down later with the help of ladders. The Chronicle says that King Heinrich was so moved by the sudden crash of men that he left the city of Erfurt on the spot and the Archaeopiscopal Landgrave dispute has remained unresolved to this very day. And that is a hell of a new word, archiepiscopal. Fun one to roll around the mouth. So just a little something to take your mind off of the horrors of our life by examining the horrors of someone else's. And that's schadenfreude in a nutshell. Welcome, kind and generous brainiacs, old and new alike. For this bonus episode, I want to talk about one of my favorite wrestlers and an icon of his decade, Andre the Giant. While no records easily surfaced to determine how much he weighed at birth, by the age of 12, Andre Rusimov, which was his name, was six foot three and weighed over 240 pounds. He wasn't going to fit on the school bus. The only car he could fit in was a pickup truck. Luckily for the family, their neighbor, playwright Samuel Beckett, drove Andre to school every day. On the subject of vehicles, when Andre was full-grown, moving people's cars around was one of his favorite pranks. He didn't hotwire them naturally, he just picked them up and moved them. Andre left home at the age of 14 to seek his fortune in the world, which is something we think of more as a 13th century thing than a 20th century thing. He was gone from his family in rural France for about five years before coming home, now over seven feet tall. His parents didn't recognize him. They didn't even realize they had seen him wrestling on television. He had changed so much, they didn't know that was their son. But it's said that his father finally saw the glint in his eye and knew that was André. At the age of 19, André received a draft notice for the French peacetime army, but they couldn't process him in. No uniform or equipment could accommodate him. He was too big to even fit on a bunk, and he definitely was too big to hide in a trench. Just as well because it gave him time to focus on his passion, which was wrestling. He worked as a mover during the day and trained at night. In 1963, he made his debut as a professional wrestler in the UK. 10 years before making his debut in what was then the WWF. He wrestled under the name Monster Rusimov, which was then shortened to Monster, and later changed to Giant. And naturally, he was, no pun intended, big in Japan. It was in Japan that Andre learned the cause of his gigantism, a pituitary condition called acromegaly. He was even offered surgery to stop him from growing anymore. That would have been maybe a sensible choice, considering how much pain he was in on a regular basis because of his abnormal body structure. He declined the surgery, because the size gave him such an advantage in the ring. Now, one symptom of acromegaly that he didn't suffer from was sterility. Sufferers are usually sterile and unable to reproduce. But Andre the Giant did have one daughter, Christine, born in 1979, She inherited his entire estate after he passed, but never met him in person. She had one opportunity to when she was ten years old, but the thought of being sent to meet this giant she had never known was too much for her, and she begged out. Andre's size made a lot of things in life difficult or impossible. He couldn't dial the rotary phones that were in use at the time without using a pencil to turn the dial, Playing piano was completely out of the question, because his fingers, one finger, would hit three keys at once, and anything he had to have had to be custom-made, like his rings, which he liked to wear, because all of his rings were big enough to pass an egg through. Now, Andre the Giant was, needless to say, quite a successful wrestler, which meant a pretty healthy income for him, which he was very generous with. He was constantly buying gifts for friends and family. One of his addictions was QVC, home shopping, because he could buy whatever he liked without having people stare at him as he did when he went out in public. He never let friends pay for dinner. He was once out to dinner with Arnold Schwarzenegger and some other folks, and Arnold snuck away and paid the bill. When Andre the Giant found out, he grabbed Arnold, picked him up, and put him on top of a car. Weird flex, but okay. The other thing Andre the Giant liked to spend his money on was alcohol. And when you weigh over 500 pounds or over 230 kilos, it's going to take a lot of alcohol to get you drunk. According to Olympic powerlifter Terry Todd, Andre the Giant would routinely consume 7,000 calories worth of alcohol a day. On a typical day, Andre would drink an entire case of beer, two bottles of wine with dinner, eight shots of brandy for dessert, move on to a second dessert, and have half a dozen cocktails or so. It's said that during the filming of The Princess Bride, Andre did manage to get drunk, drinking entire pitchers of cocktails. He ended up passing out in the lobby of the hotel, and nobody could move him. They actually just put a velvet rope around him so no one would bother him and let him sleep it off. Another story has him falling asleep in a hotel lobby while a wrestler on tour and people covering him with the piano cover from the bar. His drinking was also understandable when you remember, he was in constant physical pain, and doing a job that only adds more pain to even the healthiest body. Apart from being a physically superior wrestler to a lot of guys, Andre liked to have fun with his opponents. Like squeezing the sweat out of his singlet on them if he had them on the ground, or if he had them on the ground and they had long hair, stepping on it. But his favorite thing to do was to fart on his opponents, preferably in their faces. And his farts could last up to 30 seconds. It's said that on the set of The Princess Bride, during one of the Miracle Max scenes, Andre the Giant let out a fart that lasted almost a minute. Everyone froze in place. Nobody said anything. Rob Reiner finally said, You okay there, Andre? And Andre the Giant replied, I am now, boss. He did require spinal surgery in the early 1980s. In fact, if you look closely at his match against Hulk Hogan, which was a major television event at the time during WrestleMania, you can see a back brace under his singlet, as well as him moving very differently, very stiffly, compared to how he moved before. He would only live another ten years after that point. He returned to France, despite his difficult health, to attend the funeral of his father. That night, he went to sleep at the hotel and never woke up. At the age of 46, he had died of congestive heart failure. He chose to be cremated after his death. Now, the average adult male produces about six pounds of cremated remains, what are literally called cremains. Andre the Giant's cremains? Seventeen pounds. Still larger than life, even after death. Hello, fabulous Patreon supporters, and welcome to your October bonus mini-episode. As teased in the recent two-part episodes on twins and the episode about Todd Browning's freaks, today we're going to be talking about the two-headed nightingale, Millie Christine, as well as Myrtle Corbin, the four-legged girl. Known as the Carolina Twins, the two-headed girl, or the two-headed nightingale, Conjoined twins and former slaves, Millie and Christine McCoy, were stars of the 19th century carnival circuit, both in the U.S. and overseas. Their story begins in Welch's Creek, North Carolina, in July of 1851. Millie and Christine were born into slavery, the daughters of Jacob and Monemia. Connected at the spine, the twins were united at the lateral, posterior portion of the pelvis, The sacrum and the coccyx joined, the lower part of the spinal cord united, according to a medical report by Edinburgh physician and the inventor of chloroform, Dr. James Simpson. They were born at a combined weight of 17 pounds, but not 8.5 pounds each. Christine actually weighed 12 pounds, and Millie only 5. Each sister had two arms and two legs of her own. Though they were definitely two people... They often referred to themselves as a singular person, Millie-Christine, as did their family. Attracting attention from the minute they were born, the McCoy twins were taken from their parents and sold into the world of show business, where they would be most of their lives. First put on display at only ten months old, the pair changed hands regularly until they were acquired by a wealthy merchant named Joseph Smith, who acted as their manager. Through Smith, the Twins were billed as the Carolina Twins and toured the American South in carnival freak shows. Unlike their fellow circus attractions, the Carolina Twins commanded an additional 50 cents on top of the price of admission just to be seen, making them a hot commodity right from the start of their career. At the age of three, the pair were appearing at P.T. Barnum's American Museum in New York City competing promoters managers and exploiters of the vulnerable recognized the twins earning potential and in addition to being sold repeatedly they were kidnapped several times with the help of the twins mother smith searched for the girls eventually finding them in england taking his case to an english court smith returned with the twins and both they and their family were relocated to live with smith and his wife there Millie and Christine learned to read, write, and speak two new languages, German and French, and decided to remain with the Smith family after emancipation in 1863. For the next 30 years, Millie and Christine continued to work the circus scene, no longer sideshow attractions but as a singing duo. Rebranding themselves the two-headed nightingale, the pair worked the countryside from coast to coast, Christine, singing soprano, and Millie singing alto. They eventually revisited the places that they were forced to perform in their childhood, but this time on their own terms, first being invited to perform for Queen Victoria, and later by performing for Barnum's Traveling Circus. The duo also told their life story in their own words, in the autobiography The History of the Carolina Twins. We might, could we feel disposed, tell many anecdotes of our travels, but we think a simple narrative of ourselves is all that at present those of our patrons who bought our little book will require. The booklet was published by Buffalo Courier Printing Press and sold by their agent for the twins' benefit at 25 cents. After 30 years of performing all around the world, Millie and Christine retired to the plantation they were born at. In 1912, Millie contracted tuberculosis. And if you've listened to the recent episodes, you know that Christine died later that day. The pair were buried in a double coffin in an unmarked plot that became overgrown, but were eventually moved to the Welch's Creek Community Cemetery in 1969, which has been better maintained and where they can still be found resting today. And it should go without saying that I love learning things and I don't mind being corrected and finding out that I was wrong. That's just a new thing that I'm learning. For example, I thought that Myrtle Corbin, the four-legged woman born in Lincoln County, Tennessee in 1868, had a parasitic twin. In fact, she was born dipygus. I might be accenting the wrong syllable there. Picture one person splitting into two from the bottom up, but stopping right after the pelvis. Though Myrtle Corbin looks as if she probably has the bottom half of a parasitic twin extending from her abdomen... She actually had two pelvises side by side, and each pelvis had one large leg and one smaller leg. She could move the smaller legs, but they were never strong enough to walk with, and they didn't grow as much as the legs she was actually using. She didn't walk very much at all, though, because she had a significantly clubbed foot on the right. The smaller interior legs also each only had three toes. Corbin's birth was uneventful, apart from the fact that she was born breach. Her doctor, in writing about it, stressed repeatedly that her parents, while very similar-looking, were not blood kin. And you have to wonder if he felt like he had to put that in there. Just saying, doctors like to find the reason why strange things like a dipagus baby would happen. Corbin grew strong and healthy and entered the sideshow circuit as the four-legged girl from Texas at the age of 13, described as gentle of disposition as the summer sunshine and happy as the day is long. Her popularity in the industry was such that other showmen turned to exhibiting fake four-legged girls to copy her. She only worked the circuit for about six years, marrying a doctor named James Binknell at the age of 19. They would go on to have a handsome little family together, four daughters and a son. Myrtle's first pregnancy, though, made her gravely ill, and the doctors decided it would be best to terminate. They weren't sure if she would ever be able to bring a pregnancy to term, let alone deliver the baby. In Myrtle's side-by-side pelvises, there were, in fact, two fully developed sets of external and internal sexual organs. According to her doctor's report, Corbin preferred sexual intercourse with the right side pelvis, but had gotten pregnant in the left side pelvis. And it's rumored that three of her children were born from one uterus and two from the other. When Myrtle died of a streptococcal infection at the age of 60, her casket was covered in concrete, and her family watched over it until the concrete had fully cured. This was to prevent grave robbers from stealing her corpse. As it was, the family got several offers for her remains from prominent doctors and private collectors. I would say get a hobby, but it sounds like they already have one. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I hope everyone is staying safe, staying sane, and fingers crossed that life will be a little less exciting soon. Thanks for spending part of your day with me and stay safe.